So where were we? <laughs> the presidents. Um, we had gotten up to Franklin Roosevelt, right? And I had tried to like create a cliffhanger in which the country's economy has crashed. Herbert Hoover has tried his whole volunteerism thing where he's like, just encourage everyone to fix things. And people are like, no, we hate you. We're going to name our shack towns after you. And he's like, but I'm not as bad as Calvin Coolidge. And people are like, we don't care. You're the president. And the worst thing ever has happened. Um, he got creamed by um, Franklin Roosevelt. So what's interesting about Franklin Roosevelt is that he's from one of the wealthiest families in America. The Roosevelts, you know, are this Dutch New York um, dynasty, right? You've already had Teddy Roosevelt, and Franklin is Teddy Roosevelt's, like, third cousin, and he married another woman within the same clan, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was his fifth cousin, so whatever, chill. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, and Eleanor Roosevelt is the first first lady to be like a political figure in her own right. And she is comes out of the progressive era and the 1920s when women were really becoming involved in politics, both because women's suffrage was a movement that succeeded finally in 1920, but also because so much of the progressive era, which was about trying to like fight poverty um, and reform government, was led by this generation of new women who um, took on more male roles. And Eleanor Roosevelt was uh, not a traditional woman and was um, made fun of by a lot of people for not being beautiful. Um, but nobody could question that she was really smart and really strong. And um, Franklin Roosevelt married her in part because they like formed a political team. What else should we say about Franklin Roosevelt? He was in a wheelchair, and he hid that fact uh, in many ways. It's not like it was like a secret, but he got polio, um, and people often think that he got polio like when he was a kid, but actually he had become a pretty major political figure, had been the vice presidential candidate in 1928, and then after that got polio, and um, went through this whole time period where he was trying to like rehabilitate himself and he went down to Georgia to this like hot springs place and he would swim laps and he became close with all these other polio people and there's an extent to which the story of him getting polio and like fighting back from polio totally transforms how people perceive this guy because otherwise he's just one of the richest people in the country and at a moment where people are so poor and so desperate why would they want to elect someone who is so rich but this story of a guy who's like fought his way back physically from real difficulty helps him fit into that mold. He also um, spoke out very openly against the banks and the people on Wall Street who had caused this. And um, he was viewed as a class traitor by rich people. And he didn't try to downplay that. In fact, he played it up. He said, the bankers hate me, and I welcome their hatred. So he's, he's in some ways the perfect person to step into this time. He's not a socialist. 
Um, and, you know, the Russian Revolution was in 1917. By 1932, when he takes office, um, there is a pretty big communist and socialist movement in the United States. And um, conservatives viewed FDR as a, like a closet socialist. But I think the better way to view him is as a guy who was willing to try anything to figure out how to keep the system in place, which meant changing the system in huge ways. Because he gets into office, there's this crisis, everyone's mad at Hoover for not doing things. And in his first 100 days, which are called the 100 days, um, he passes tons of legislation that gets the government involved in the economy in ways that it had never done before. In some ways, you know, the way that Lincoln under the Civil War in that crisis expands the government, you know, hugely. Roosevelt in the Depression is the next big expansion. And so it's everything from um, the, this agricultural act that sets the prices of crops because, you know, crop prices had crashed and people were trying to grow more and more so that they could try to keep up. And instead, he starts to regulate the amount of crops that people can grow, which, of course, uh, conservatives, Calvin Coolidge style, stay out of the government. Conservatives see this as communism, um, but it worked. It got farmers out of uh, a really deep hole. Um, he also passes a lot of legislation that creates jobs for people from the Civilian Conservation Corps, which has you know, unemployed men out there building like paths in the natural national parks. Like a lot of times when you're in national parks, you'll see like CCC built this hiking trail. That was how they got people to work. And there was also stuff like the Works Progress Administration that got people building roads and even hiring artists and playwrights and muralists and just like using the government's power to create jobs. And that's because he's the first president who embraces Keynesian economics, which says the reason that depressions happen is because everyone's so scared that they won't spend money. Businesses won't hire new people because they're all afraid that they, it will never get out of the depression. And so for us to get out of the depression, what we need is the government to really confidently step in and just like build everything up. And once that happens, it'll get the economy going again. And that includes the idea that we should spend money that we don't have. We should go into debt because in the long run, it'll pay itself off if it gets the government going. Again, viewed as socialism. Um, and there were a whole group of people who really saw FDR as dangerous and as taking steps that would lead the United States down this path that so many other places were going through. Um, and there is some argument for the fact that his view of the Constitution was pretty loosey-goosey, like that he, he didn't worry too much about what was and wasn't constitutional. And you know, the most famous example of that is this court packing scheme where the Supreme Court, which had been filled with justices who were nominated by people like Harding and Coolidge, who were very conservative, strikes down a lot of this legislation saying it's unconstitutional. Like Congress doesn't have the power to set agricultural prices or to even create a national minimum wage. And he did a lot of kind of labor regulations about protecting unions and things that were struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, and Roosevelt is like, are you serious? I have the largest majority in Congress 
you know, since the Republicans after the Civil War. Um, I have huge support from the whole country, um, which one big part of how he got the support of the whole country is that this is the time where radio comes into place. And he, more than anyone, understands that like speaking to people through the radio is very intimate. In some ways, as you know, like more intimate than television. And he would do what were called fireside chats, where people were sitting around in their homes and they would turn on the radio and Roosevelt would just talk to them and say, this is what I'm doing. And it made people trust him. And if you listen back to these fireside chats, it's amazing because he's able to just tell them whatever he wants. And because there's not this giant media infrastructure of politics. Like today, so much of politics is how do you talk to people? But before that point, like no one had even heard the president's voice before. And so people are so trusting because it's like a person just talking to them that he'll just say things like, we are going to close the banks this weekend and it's for the good of the banks. So do not go to the banks and take out your money because that is not what your government wants you to do. And people are like, oh, okay. Whereas now you'd be like, who are you to tell me like what I can and can't do? But this makes him such a powerful political figure. So powerful that when the Supreme Court, this unelected group of old men is trying to stop him, he's like, this is not fair. Or there's gotta be a way around this. And so, the way around it is he looks at the Constitution, and in the Constitution, technically, it doesn't say how many justices need to be on the Supreme Court. Now, many laws have been passed um, over the years that had set up the federal court system, but it's not constitutionally mandated. So he says, and he goes on the radio and announces this you know, into everyone's living room. He says, Many of the members of the Supreme Court are over 70 years old. And to help them with their work, I will add new Supreme Court justices. Do not be alarmed. <laughs> like the whole, the whole fact that he can just like talk to people and, and say things that should raise a lot of alarm bells. Um, I think it gives him this incredible power. But was no one questioning, like, hey, do we trust this guy? Like, uh, Well, certainly out there, you know, in New York City and other places where, like, powerful, wealthy people were, they were questioning this. And by the time he's doing this court packing scheme, it's actually um, later in the 30s. And actually members of both political parties say wait a minute, you can't do that. This is another one of those moments like Johnson's impeachment where people say, okay, politically I understand why you want to do that, but if we set this precedent, what's going to happen to the Constitution? And so Democrats and Republicans block this court packing scheme and they say, we're not going to support that. But one Supreme Court justice seems to change his mind and starts voting the other way. And so some people, you know, tell this story as basically Roosevelt fired a warning shot and it, it switched the Supreme Court. The switch in time that saved nine is the phrase. Although if you actually look at the timeline of how the switch happened, 
you can make an argument that actually didn't have anything to do with the court packing scheme. But the fact of the matter is that after that, a lot of New Deal legislation gets held up. And by the way, the New Deal is the like name of all of these programs that, that Roosevelt put into place. Um, so he's viewed as a hero um, and wins two of the biggest landslide elections. He wins, I think, like 48 or 49 states in 1936 when he adds to his platform um, the repeal of prohibition, which we haven't really talked about at all, but you know, during the time where alcohol was illegal, which was pushed mostly by like wealthy Protestant people and particularly um, women's uh, organizations who were troubled by like the deep alcoholism that came from an industrial society where like men would go work in the factories and it was this horrible mind numbing labor and then they would go drink themselves into a stupor and then there'd be no money to take care of people. Um, but of course it didn't work. Banning alcohol didn't work. And um, when Roosevelt campaigned as a wet instead of as a dry, people were ready by 1936 to repeal prohibition. So he repeals prohibition. He helps end the Great Depression. But what really ends the Great Depression is World War II. Um, and if you remember, Americans were pretty um, isolationist for most of um, the 19th century, with the exception of taking over a bunch of countries where uh, brown people were living and using them as their colonies. But in terms of getting involved in European conflicts, you know, they ended up involved in World War I only at the very end, uh, after Woodrow Wilson kind of changed his tune. And Roosevelt finds himself playing a sort of similar game as Hitler rises to power. Um, he knows that the public, for the most part, is skeptical of getting involved in another European war. And also for that matter, there were a fair number of powerful people in the United States who sympathized with the Nazis, Walt Disney, Henry Ford, um, who saw communism as the bigger threat than fascism and who were fairly anti-Semitic and, and thought that you know, the rhetoric that was so anti-Jewish um, was a legitimate political concern. And remember, you know, it was only 1924 when Calvin Coolidge signs these immigration acts that are basically meant to keep out Eastern European Jews and, you know, other undesirable groups. And so it's not like the United States is full of people who instantly morally want to stand up to the rise of Hitler. But uh, it's very concerning. And people like Roosevelt want to find a way to support the effort against Hitler, even if they're not ready to send in troops. So he creates a, he says, we're going to, we're not going to be involved in the war, but we're going to be the arsenal of democracy, which means we're going to use our factories to build all sorts of weapons. And then we're going to send them over, which if you remember is what Wilson did at first as well. Um, and in the lend lease act, they basically just start sending tons of weapons, um, to Britain and France, um, or at least at the beginning, because France is quickly taken over by the Nazis. And so it's just Britain under Churchill holding out for a while. Hitler felt that eventually the United States um, would get involved, um, but wanted to hold it off as long as possible. Meanwhile, Japan is taking over uh, a whole bunch of parts of um, 
Asia, most notably pieces of China. And the United States is also arming the Chinese nationalist rebels. And it's viewed as, you know, it's a hyper-militaristic Japan, hyper-militaristic Germany. When Roosevelt uses language like the arsenal of democracy, he was framing both Japan and Germany as like opponents of the democratic system. Um, and it's ultimately the attack on Pearl Harbor that brings the United States into war against both of those places. And once as something that you see often in American history, the United States will be very skeptical of getting involved in a conflict until there's an attack on Americans and then it can very quickly turn around. And the speed with which Roosevelt was able to bring the United States into war against Japan and Germany um, has made some historians say, or more often conspiracy theorists say, that Roosevelt knew that there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor and he allowed it to happen because it would get us into this war that he really felt we needed to get into, right? Um, the historical evidence for that is not clear. There, I, I think the likelihood is that he did not know that there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor, but I think the emotional feeling of it that, that Roosevelt saw this as, okay, well, now we're going to get involved in what we finally have to get involved in is correct. So why did Japan bomb... Pearl Harbor, wouldn't they really not want the U.S. to be involved? It seems like it's just like a, a suicide. It's a great question. Um, two things. One is you have to remember how weird it is that the United States controls Hawaii and all of these islands that we stole in the Spanish-American War. Like, Japan had this idea of, like, spheres of influence. And, you know, we were always like, haha, why do we have Guam? Like, why is that part of the U.S.? Or even, like, isn't it kind of weird that we have these islands in the Pacific Ocean that are Hawaii and that's a state? Um, but the United States strategically took those, both because of, you know, imperial colonization goals, but also because there was this battle for naval power and they wanted influence over China and Japan. And so these bases are there in part to contain Japan. And Japan felt that in the long run, the United States was going to be a threat. Um, but the real specific answer to why they attacked Pearl Harbor at the time that they did has to do with oil. Um, there was a lack of oil and Japan needed to um, seize control of areas where they could get it. And it's not just Pearl Harbor that was attacked on that day. It's a whole string of islands in that region. And so the argument is like they needed to, and you know, eventually into the Philippines, like they needed to try to early on get control of these stores of energy so that they could continue the war effort. And if they lost control of that, um, then it would only be a matter of time before they lost. And so basically they felt that the element of surprise um, was going to give them some advantage and that they were going to have to do this eventually. So that's when they did it. But uh, I think you can also argue that it's one of the biggest military blunders of all time. Just like Hitler deciding uh, a few years earlier to attack the Soviet Union, who had been allied with Hitler, um, is a huge blunder. And, and you know those two acts bring the two powers that ultimately defeat them, the Soviet Union and the United States, into World War II. Um, he decides to run for a third term in, 
at right before we get into World War II um, in 1940. And nobody's done that, although some people have tried, like Teddy Roosevelt. Um, but basically he argues like, you guys love me, and this has been uh, a really difficult time, so I'm going to run again. And he wins. Um, and he actually ends up winning four terms. He, when he runs for his fourth term, by then people are um, deep, deep in World War II. He's the only president to serve more than two terms. And um, by 1944, when he is beginning the campaign for his fourth term, um, he's deep in negotiations over what's going to happen after World War II. Uh, should stop for a moment to note uh, the Japanese internment, which was a decision that Roosevelt took under pressure from racist people um, in Congress and in California, but it was ultimately done through executive order. So he did it himself. And uh, Japanese people um, who were both immigrants from Japan and people who had been born in the United States and were of Japanese descent were held in camps. And that was never done with German Americans. And um, the only real explanation for that is racism. And so when you're going down the list of like great things about FDR, that's an important uh, asterisk, mm -hmm. uh, if not something bigger than an asterisk, to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, Wait, he was getting pressures from who to do it? There was a real like, you know, anti-Japanese fear and hysteria in the country, um, and you know, a lot of Japanese Americans served in the war. Um, mostly, they were sent to fight in Europe, um, but you know, some of the great. Um, military divisions were made up of Japanese Americans. Um, but those who did not volunteer were often viewed as suspect and possibly as spies. And, you know, in California, there were spottings of submarines, you know, off the coast. And this was, there was people saying that they were being coordinated with Japanese spies on the mainland. And there probably were some Japanese spies on the mainland. But, you know, this was men, women, and young children who were not spies, um, being carted off. Mm -hmm. um, and that fits into the, the larger view of Roosevelt as a president who did what he wanted and worried about whether it was constitutional later. Mm -hmm. um, in 1944, it's pretty clear that the United States is going to win the war on both Fronts, although it's going to take some time. D-Day is in July of 1944. That's when um, troops under a guy named Dwight Eisenhower uh, and a bunch of British and French troops also land in France and start moving towards Germany. And Roosevelt's going to a bunch of conferences with the leaders of the Allies. So Winston Churchill um, and Joseph Stalin being the two main groups. Represented also Charles de Gaulle, who was like representing the Free French. But um, you know the the interesting thing about this moment in world history is that this these two groups, the United States and the Soviet Union, who are allies in this fight against what had been a huge world superpower, Germany, but is being systematically destroyed. They're on the same team, but it's clear that they're going they're going to be in conflict. And both sides are very distrustful, and for good reason. Stalin 
is a dictator and a murderer and is a communist. <laughs> um, duh. And the United States has been fearful of communism. You know, under Woodrow Wilson, there was the Palmer raids and roundups of communists. And there's been a lot of um, legislation and action in the United States to root out communists. So it's not like everyone, when Hitler came to power, was suddenly like, oh, we're cool with communism now. They're on our team. It was like, okay, we're going to work together to win this war. But as soon as it's over, there's going to be questions. And chief among those questions is what happens to Europe once the Nazis are defeated? Who's going to control what, you know? Which is sort of what the Treaty of Versailles was about when Wilson went over there and, and his stance was national self-determination, let people vote and decide. And that tends to be the rhetoric of the United States, including um, Roosevelt, that we're going to let these countries elect their own leaders. But Stalin's main concern is... He doesn't want Germany for the third time um, in his, you know, in 50 years to invade. Uh, and he feels that the Soviets should have influence over the group of countries to their west where they, the invasion you know, took place. Um, and the Yalta conference, which is kind of the final conference that FDR attends, um, they make deals about how Germany itself is going to be divided up. And the decision is that there'll be um, an Eastern sphere of influence that will be under the control of the Soviets, um, which includes Berlin. And there was kind of a race to get to Berlin because the thought was, yes, we're going to defeat the Nazis, but which military group is going to be on the ground? But um, the Red Army gets to Berlin first, which is a country, that, a city, as you know, that's further to the east side. Um, so they're going to divide Germany into two parts, and then they're also going to divide Berlin itself because it's the capital into... Actually, the deal is they're going to divide everything into four parts. The U.S. is going to control part, the U.K., France, and the Soviet Union. But the U.S., France, and the U.K. are so tight that it's pretty clear that they're going to cooperate. The real question is the Soviets versus the U.S. And so they decide to divide Berlin also into four different sections. Um, and... Some people feel that when FDR made this deal, that he really sold out big parts of Europe to the communists. Um, and sometimes it's seen because he was he was like too friendly towards the Soviet Union. And Winston Churchill has been critical of the decisions that FDR made at that conference. FDR, who was a, really a, a wheeler dealer, who was good at talking to everyone, and you know had his own authoritarian tendencies that perhaps made him less freaked out. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty bold claim for me to throw out there. But, but I, I think FDR, um, compared to many other Americans, was willing to talk and make a deal. And in the background of this is the fact that you know, Britain is really destroyed. Britain has been attacked and bombed. Um, and the United States has been building a nuclear bomb secretly, uh, as has the Soviet Union, but it's unclear who's going to get it first, as has, to some extent, Germany was trying to do this. Mm. But under FDR, it's totally secret. It's unclear how much of this information each side had. People think that it's possible that this war will end, and then immediately the United States and the Soviet Union will go to war. And um, FDR, I think, is trying to prevent that. I mean, 
we don't have to spend any time talking about how horrific World War II is. Um, and the Soviet Union in particular, the, you know, the, the levels of deaths that Russian people mm-hmm. went through was millions and millions. And the famous story of Hitler invading and just blitzing through Russia and people coming to Stalin and saying, you know, our casualties, we're losing them three to one. And he says, well, thank God we outnumber them four to one. Like the, the Russian strategy is just, we're bigger, we have so many people and they're expendable and we'll fight through it. But the experience of Russians under World War II is enough to make them really determined to prevent this from happening again. FDR was also pretty sick at Yalta. He was getting old and he still had a lot of health problems that dated back to polio. And so some people also say that he was just exhausted and at Yalta it just wasn't as strong as he could have been um, in pushing Stalin. Again, the historical record on that is mixed. Then he dies. Um, And the guy who becomes president is a man who he chose as his vice president for that final campaign. 